Please take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And we take into our consideration this morning verses 26 through verse 40. 1 Corinthians 14 verses 26 through 40. We read our passage to you this morning. 1 Corinthians 14 verses 26 through 40. These are the words of God. How is it then, brethren, when ye come together, every one of you hath a psalm, hath a doctrine, hath a tongue, hath a revelation, hath an interpretation, Let all things be done unto edifying. If any man speak in an unknown tongue, let it be by two or at the most by three, and that by course, and let one interpret. But if there be no interpreter, let him keep silence in the church, and let him speak to himself and to God. Let the prophet speak two or three, and let the other judge. If anything be revealed to another that sitteth by, let the first hold his peace. For ye may all prophesy one by one, that all may learn and all may be comforted. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, let your women keep silence in the churches, for it is not permitted unto them to speak. But they are commanded to be under obedience, as also saith the law. And if they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is a shame for women to speak in the church. What? Came the word of God out from you? Or came it unto you only? If any man think himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things that I write unto you are the commandments of the Lord. But if any man be ignorant, let him be ignorant. Wherefore, brethren, covet to prophesy, and forbid not to speak with tongues. Let all things be done decently and in order. In every good crime movie, there's always a dramatic courtroom scene. The witness takes the stand, the lawyer begins his intense line of questioning, and eventually the examination breaks down into a shouting match, and tears start streaming, and other voices from the gallery join into the commotion, and at some point, the judge will slam his gavel down on the desk, and he will cry out the famous words, Order in the court! Well, the state of affairs in the Corinthian church is not much different than that courtroom scene. There's rampant sin in the church. Members are getting drunk at the Lord's table. There is abysmal immaturity, schism, division. And last, but certainly not least, there is an abuse of the gift of tongues that is nothing short of chaotic. And in chapter 14, it is as if Paul is slamming down the gavel and saying, Order in the church. The apostle is calling them by the authority of God to return to a form of worship that is becoming of those who follow the Lord Jesus Christ. In chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians, 
Paul is attempting to bring order into a chaotic situation. Now, there is such a thing as dead worship. There are some Christians who are of the faulty opinion that a dry, cold, dull expression of their religion is a mark of spirituality. And sadly, this opinion is most often found in churches such as ours that identify with the Reformed tradition. That's because in Reformed churches, a high premium is placed on the intellectual aspects of Christianity. And we value the clear, cogent teaching of doctrine and theology. And overall, this is a very good thing so long as we remember that our intellects and our emotions are not at odds with one another. In other words, just because we value the intelligent teaching of theology doesn't mean we ought to discount the emotional impact that our theology must have upon us. Notice I said must. Your theology must have an emotional impact upon you. Otherwise, you're not worshiping God with your whole being. Rather, the opposite is true, brothers and sisters. The more we learn and understand the theological teachings of God's word, the greater of an effect that that theology ought to have on our emotions because we want our emotions to be driven by the truths we believe. So, yes, it is indeed a bad thing when our worship is characterized by emotional experiences void of the truth, but it is a most beautiful and glorious thing when our worship involves not only our minds, but also our hearts, as God's truth touches every fiber of our being intellectually and emotionally. Yes, there is a such thing as dead and dry worship. There's also such a thing as worship that lacks any semblance or order whatsoever. And there is also such a thing as a worship characterized by chaos and confusion. And this form of hectically disordered worship was that which characterized the Corinthian church. <coughs> and it is sadly this form of worship that characterizes many churches today. <coughs> now, <coughs> perhaps you're wondering, why do we need a sermon on orderly worship? After all, I have just said <coughs> that the problem facing most Reformed churches is almost never chaotic worship, but dead worship. And as far as our church goes, <coughs> someone may attempt to accuse us of being a bit dry at times, but they would be very hard-pressed to charge us with disorder in our worship. We're very ordered. We're very meticulous. We have a liturgy, and we follow it, and we meet Sunday after Sunday, week in and week out, and we follow this same order with virtually no variation whatsoever each week when we come to worship. If anything, we must be careful not to become so rigid in our orderliness that we do become dead and dry, which, by the way, I don't think we are. I'm just saying that's something we need to be aware of with the order that we have, never to just get into this routine where we're going through the motions and not actually thinking through and, and allowing these elements and parts of our worship to impact us. But that's not what Paul is talking about in this text. He's talking about the opposite end of the spectrum. 
So why do we need a sermon on orderly and decent worship, and why am I going to preach one? Well, first of all, I'm not preaching this sermon because I see a deficiency in our order. I'm not, I'm not saying this morning that you know, we are really disordered and we need to be more ordered, and so let me preach this sermon and listen to it so we can change and become more ordered. I'm very thankful for the manner in which God has led us to worship Him, but I do nevertheless believe that this text is profitable for us for several reasons. Let me give them to you. Number one, because it's in the Word of God. God knows what we need better than we know what we need. And when God inspired Paul to write the book of 1 Corinthians, he knew full and well about churches like ours. We ought never to approach a text with the prideful attitude that says, oh, we have covered this. We've got this down. Let's skip to the next section. It's in the word of God. Therefore, we need it. Secondly, because as we've seen so many times in 1 Corinthians... The issue on the surface is always produced by a deeper underlying issue. Remember how the issue with the Lord's Supper was really caused by an underlying issue of pride and selfishness? Remember that? Remember how the issue of eating meat sacrificed to idols was really caused by an underlying issue of being inconsiderate of others and insisting upon our own rights? Right? So... As we consider this text that deals with disorderly worship, we need to be asking the question, what are the underlying issues at the root of this problem? And thirdly, this text is profitable for us because we must be on constant guard to defend the truths and practices that God has revealed to us through his word. We are indeed a very blessed church. And I know that I am very blessed to be a member of this church. (laughs) By God's grace, I have the privilege of worshiping with a church who takes the Bible seriously and takes theology seriously, takes worship seriously. And that's not a small thing. Try finding a church that does that these days. And you, you you will realize that it's not as easy as you might expect it to be. But we must never take these things for granted. No church is immune to the errors of its day. And just because things may look well now in a certain area doesn't mean that they will always be that way. I want you to understand that, and I think you do understand, that worship is of the utmost importance. Worship matters. And the way we worship matters. While I believe that our worship at this church is orderly and biblical, it is still good for us to be reminded of these truths so that we safeguard the purity of our worship and keep everything we do in the church as faithful to the scriptures as we can possibly be. That's our goal in everything we do, is to zone in on the teachings of the Word of God and not stray one millimeter to the right or to the left. So let's look at this text and consider the instruction that Paul here lays down for us. Now, these are very, very practical instructions based on principles put forth earlier in this chapter. It's a very practical text. So let's remember, as we look at these practical instructions, that reveling in chaos is not a sign that we are close to God, and confusion is not a virtue. But there is a unique beauty 
to orderly worship in spirit and in truth. Now, because of the length of this text, verses 26 down through verse 40, this will be part one of a two-part message entitled Order in the Church. And we'll look at the first uh, half of this text this morning and the remainder of this text next time. Let me show you three things. I'll show you three things this morning and three things next time for a total of a six-point outline. Um, But really, this is one continuous thought process in the Apostles' writing here. So uh, consider this to be one sermon that's very long, but I'm having to break up into two parts, okay? Unless you just want to stay here all day. Number one, I want you to see the what of worship. The what of worship. And that's in verse 26. Paul begins this discussion by listing some of the elements of worship that were to be observed when the church gathered together. Now, his goal here is not to give an exhaustive list of everything that was to be done in worship. So don't think that verse 26 is a list of everything we're supposed to do when we come together for worship. No, he's, in fact, the parts of worship that he mentions here were almost exclusively limited to that first century apostolic church. Now, what Paul is doing is he's simply mentioning a few of the things that the Corinthians did when they met for worship so that he can then give practical instruction on how they were to be done. Notice he begins, though, with this phrase in verse 26. He says, How is it then, brethren, when ye come together? Now, there's two things I want to point out to you here. Number one, the instructions that Paul will now give pertain to the corporate assembly of the body. Um, for other references throughout this series, you can go back and you can listen to the sermon that was preached from, I, I believe it was verse uh, 2 of chapter 11. We did a whole sermon just on verse 2 of chapter 11, where Paul says, I, I thank God that you keep the ordinances as I gave them to you, right? And we talked about the, the regulative principle of worship, but you must understand that in the Word of God, God gives special directions and a special principle of regulation for the church when it gathers together as the church that doesn't apply anywhere else. What you do in your private devotional life is not bound by the regulative principle of the church. What you do as a family in family worship is not bound by the regulative principle of the church. What we might do at a church fellowship on a Sunday evening in a member's home is not bound by the regulative principle of the church. But when we come together in Jesus' name as an entire assembled body, we are bound by the regulative principle of the church, which is that we must do in worship only that which God has commanded or which is deduced by just and necessary consequences, nothing more, nothing less. Remember that chapter 14 is at the tail end of a major division in 1 Corinthians. And it's a major division in which the apostle is dealing with matters related to the public gathering of the church. When did this section begin? Well, it began back in chapter 11. Paul dealt with the practice of head covering, and then he dealt with the Lord's Supper, and then he dealt with spiritual gifts, and then he focused in particularly on the gifts of tongues and prophecy and how they're to be used in the church. And so for a number of months now, really for most of 2023, we've been looking at 
instructions on the public assembly of the church. Why, do, why am I stressing this? Well, because if you're going to rightly interpret and apply this section of 1 Corinthians, it's absolutely necessary for you to remember this context. You will get yourself into all sorts of exegetical and practical trouble if you try to implement this passage with no regard for the context of the gathered church meeting for worship. And that brings me to the second thing I want you to see from this phrase. How is it, brethren, when you come together? The second thing is this. I want you to see the immense importance of the local, visible congregation that meets together in Jesus' name as his New Testament church for the explicit purpose of service and worship. One of my favorite expositors of 1 Corinthians, I've mentioned him several times in this series, is Pastor Brian Borgman. Something that Brian Borgman said about this text was that if you took the church of Jesus Christ and you put it in a box and you packed it up in a box and you picked the box up and you looked on the bottom of the box, you would see the words assembly required. Assembly required. Because that's what the church is. No assembly, no church. Now I get it. I know doctrinally, I get the doctrine of the universal church, the invisible, some might want to call it the invisible church. We've mentioned that in these sermons, right? I get that. I get that there's a sense in which all the elect of all ages are bound together. I think there's arguments to be made and as, as to whether or not the word church is actually the most accurate word to describe that group. And I say that simply because the very word church, by definition, means an assembly, ecclesia, the word church is not a, a, a modern translation of the Greek word ekklesia, right? It, it actually comes from an old Scottish word, kirk. And then we Anglicanized it a little bit more, and now we say church. But if you really wanted to give a modern translation of the word, you would just say the assembly. That would really clear up a lot of theological confusion. I'm not advocating that we do that, but I believe it was actually in Tyndale's New Testament, where he just, every time ekklesia came up with only a few exceptions... He just translated it as assembly or congregation. This isn't the main point of the text, but, but I want to point out to you the importance of the church because I want you to understand that without the church, and what I mean by that is without an assembled congregation of baptized believers in Jesus' name, you simply cannot obey what Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians 11-14. You can't obey it. How are you going to obey the teachings of the Lord's Supper without a church? How are you going to uh, observe the ordinances without a church? Are you going to baptize yourself? Are you going to serve yourself the Lord's Supper? How can you take communion if you don't have anyone to commune with? <laughs> How are you going to be edified by the spiritual gifts of others without a church in which to worship? How are you going to exercise your spiritual gifts if you're not faithful to the assembly of the saints. And by the way, that's not just true of these chapters in 1 Corinthians. But the entire New Testament presupposes <laughs> that faithful followers of the Lord Jesus Christ unite themselves to one of his local churches for service and worship. It's just presupposed. You cannot find 
a single clear example of a faithful Christian in the New Testament who was not connected to the local church. Amen. If you're a member of a healthy church in which the teachings of these chapters are obeyed, then that is something to praise God for. We should value, because the Bible says God is the one who sets us in the church. And so we, we praise him for our salvation. We praise him for our redemption. But you know what else I praise him for? I praise him that he's made me a member of his church. Mm-hmm. I'm thankful for that. So let's look at Paul's practical teachings for our worship when we come together in the church. And we won't really see this as much today as we will next time. But another reason why it's important to remember the context is because some of these principles um, apply to the church. But when the church is not assembled, there are things that are totally permissible, totally okay, that aren't okay when the church gathers. We'll see that as we make our way through this text. So let's look at this text. And the first question that we want to ask is, what is to be done? The what of our worship. And in answering this question... Paul mentions five elements of worship. Well, let me just define them for you, and then we'll look at their practical use and application. Okay, so he begins in verse 26, and he says, How is it then, brethren, when you come together, here's the first one, every one of you hath a psalm. Every one of you hath a psalm. Well, there's a few options as to what this means. Um, Number one, it could mean that a member of the congregation... (laughs) feels led to sing one of the psalms from the Psalter in corporate worship. That could be one of the meanings. Uh, It could mean a pre-written song that a member brings to sing in the church. Some of you might have a translation in your lap that actually just translates that as every one of you has a song. So it could mean that. Um, It could mean, thirdly, a form of prophecy in which the one singing was given the ability to sing infallibly under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It's kind of like a prophetic singing. And honestly, given the context of this passage, that third option is really very plausible. Because Paul is talking about tongues, prophecy, and revelation. And so it it makes sense if this was referring to some sort of charismatic, inspired, prophetic singing. Now, we really have no way of being 100% dogmatically sure about that. And if it is some sort of charismatic singing, we must remember that that isn't the way God speaks to his church today, right? He speaks to his church today through the written word, not through some spontaneously inspired singing of one member, but but there's some element of singing being done here, right? Could be someone who wants to sing to the church, or maybe he has a song that he wants to lead the church in and teach the church, but singing is the element that's being referred to here. He goes on and he says, Hath a doctrine. In the King James, the word doctrine also refers to a teaching. Right? So when you read the pastoral epistles and it says give heed to doctrine, it means give heed to teaching. It's a teaching. So this is referring to a member of the church who comes with a doctrinal teaching to deliver to the congregation. And of course, we know that that is a normative element of our worship today. We have doctrine in the church. It says, some of you hath a tongue. We've studied the gift of tongues uh, enough now to know what this is referring to, right? It's a member of the church who has been given a prophetic word from God in a language that they do not naturally know. 
Paul says, every one of you, some of you, have, you've got a psalm, you've got a doctrine, you've got a tongue, and then hath a revelation. Now, this is similar to the gift of tongues, right? Because it's also referring to someone who has been given a prophetic word from God, but their message is in the common language of the church. What's the difference between a tongue and a revelation? Well, the language is the difference. That's the difference. And that's why prophecy is to be preferred over tongues in the church's worship. Again, that's just a review statement. We've seen that in previous sermons because prophecy in, co- in the common language of the church has the ability to edify everyone without need for interpretation. And then he says, lastly, every one of you hath an interpretation. Now, this could be an interpretation of the message that was spoken in an unknown tongue. Could be that. But it could also be an interpretation of the revelation that was given as well. You say, well, why would a revelation in the common language need an interpretation? Well, think about prophecies in your Bible. Think about the prophets in the Old Testament. Think about the book of Revelation. Think about uh, Daniel there in Daniel chapter 2. The king was given a dream. But the dream, even though he understood the words... He didn't, what he didn't understand was the spiritual meaning of those words. So it could be that what happened in the Corinthian church was someone stood up and they had a revelation and they described this dream they had and maybe there was this beast and he had six heads and, you know, and it's describing all of these things and the church is like, well, I understand what that means, but I don't understand what that means. You know what I mean? And so there needed to be someone in the church with the gift of interpretation who could then stand up and say, well, these six heads represented this and this and this, and this is the spiritual meaning. And once we have the spiritual meaning, then we can be edified by the revelation, right? And so Paul mentions these few elements of worship, but notice he then goes on and he says this. He says, let all things be done unto edifying. After mentioning these elements of first century worship, Paul reminds them of a lesson he's already taught them. And that lesson is this, everything we do in the church as we exercise our spiritual gifts must be done with the goal of building up the body. Must be done with the goal of building up the body. Let me repeat for the umpteenth time something I've told you over and over and over again preaching through this section of 1 Corinthians. God has never given anyone a spiritual gift for the purpose of making them look good and boosting their own ego and pride. That's not why he gives spiritual gifts. The reason why God gives spiritual gifts to his people is so that they can use them to edify other members of the body. I know you already know that because I've said it many times in recent sermons, but you know, if God repeats something, time and time again. I don't think it's so bad for the preacher to repeat it time and time again as well. This is certainly a principle that God has stressed over and over. Maybe it's important. Maybe we should pay attention, right? Maybe we should remember. Uh, If we don't get anything else out of this whole series of sermons on spiritual gifts, maybe we should remember I I don't know what they all are. I don't know what tongues is. I don't know what prophecy is. Is it preaching? Is it not? But I do know this. All spiritual gifts, the reason why they're given, for the edification of the body. Now, 
Paul has stated these elements of worship. He will now go on to give practical instructions about their use in the church. And let me preface these next few verses, uh, verses 27 down through about 32 or so. Um, Let me preface them with these two important reminders and qualifications. Number one, the specific elements of worship addressed in this text were pertinent to the apostolic church of the first century. These are not the normative elements of worship that we practice today. This is not what our church looks like today, and it it shouldn't be what our church looks like today. This is what the church looked like before the canon of Scripture was complete, before they had a Bible from which to preach, and they relied on uh, members coming into the church that had a revelation or had a tongue or had a vision or had a dream, right? We are, and by the way, what we have today is so much better we don't have to worry about whether or not we're going to receive a word from God on Sunday. We, we will have a word from God on Sunday, so long as we have the Bible, right? So, the elements are not the same, but what is the same? What is the same is the principle of instruction and application, and that is edification, order, and decency. And so the same principles he will give Uh, that undergird these instructions apply to what we do in the church today. You'll see what I mean as we go along. Be looking for these overarching, transcendent instructions that are found in this text. But secondly, I want you to understand that there is a distinction to be made between formal and informal contributions to the worship in the church. There's a distinction to be made there. Paul is talking in verse... 26 about the elements of worship, but how does he talk about them? He talks about them in terms of things that the members bring to the church. That's interesting, isn't it? He doesn't say these are the things the church has. No, he says these are the things that you bring. You bring a tongue, you bring a psalm, you bring a revelation, you bring an interpretation. And the same is true today. The elements of our worship are things that we must bring to the church. There is a member who must bring a message from the Word of God. There are members who bring prayers to be publicly prayed in the assembly. There are members who bring their voices to sing psalms and hymns. These are what we might call formal contributions. There is also informal contribution. Anything that you bring for the edification of others in the body. And perhaps you read a portion of scripture this past week in your devotional time that the Lord used to bless you, and so you bring it with you to church and you share it with someone. Perhaps you pronounce a robust amen during the preaching of the word. And that's an encouragement to the preacher, but it's also an encouragement to the rest of the congregation. That is something you have brought for the edification of the church. Perhaps you've brought your technological abilities so that we can video call with members who are home, right? All of these things are things that we bring to the church for edification. And what I want you to understand is that all of you, not just the preacher, are required to bring things for the edification of the body. Because if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you're not called to be a spectator, but an active participant in his worship. Amen. (laughs) You know, an unbeliever can attend our worship services 
And they can spectate, but they can't really participate. Because they don't have spiritual gifts. Because they don't have the Spirit. So all they can do is, is be an outsider looking in at the worship of the saints. But if you are here and you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, that means you have the Spirit indwelling you, and that means you have a spiritual gift. And so you're to bring those gifts. You're to cultivate those gifts, to prepare those gifts, and bring them with you when you come to church so that you can exercise them unto edification. You might not have any formal gifts. You might not preach a sermon from the pulpit. You might not lead the singing of hymns and psalms. You might not pray publicly in the assembly, but you have a spiritual gift, and you ought to bring it with you. So that's the what of our worship, the contributions that we make. But secondly, I want you to see the way of worship, the way of worship. We're going to move rather quickly through this, these verses because they're very straightforward. They're very plain. Notice first, Paul begins in verse 27 with the way of worship, and he gives us some instructions on how the gift of tongues was to be used in the church. And he gives us three in verse 27. Notice what he says. He says, if any man speak in an unknown tongue, here's the first one, let it be by two or at the most by three. The first rule for tongues is that it can only be exercised by no more than two or three people at any one meeting of the church. Second rule, he says, and that by course. What does that mean? That means, second rule, that the tongue speakers must speak consecutively. They must speak one at a time. This prohibits a throng of people all ecstatically speaking in tongues at the same time. He says it right there. Isn't this amazing that it's right here in the text? No more than two or three, that by course. And the third rule, notice in verse 27, and let one interpret. So you can have two or three tongue speakers. You can have no more than one person speaking at any given time in an unknown tongue. And you must have one person interpreting. Those are the rules for the interpreter, or for, for the speaking in tongues. And notice in verse 28, he says, But if there be no interpreter, let him keep silence in the church, and let him speak to himself and to God. So the interpreter is not optional, he's mandatory. You might have three tongue speakers ready to go, but if there's no interpreter, I'm sorry, no tongue speaking. That's what the Bible says. Why does God give these rules? Well, because we've already learned that without interpretation, tongues don't edify. Mm -hmm. And if, if anything, tongues or otherwise doesn't edify, then it can't be done in the church. And that You could ask the question, that, that's really the, the great litmus test for should we do it? Of course, the, the, the litmus test is, is it in the Bible? Mm -hmm. But beyond that, is it edifying? And we know we have to sing, right? We have to sing in church. It's a required element of worship. How do we determine what to sing? Well, we ask the question, is this song edifying? Is there an edifying value in this song? Well, the great thing about singing the Psalms is you don't have to worry about that. Mm -hmm. You know it's edifying. You know that, that it's got good content because it's inspired by God. But I believe, amen, that we're also required to sing uninspired hymns written by men in the church, in the new covenant. Okay, well, how do we figure out which ones we're going to sing? We ask the question, not 
when they were written or how old are they or what hymnal are they in. We don't ask those questions because those questions are irrelevant. We ask the question, is it edifying? And if it's not edifying, well, then we don't want to sing it in the church. So he says, if there's no interpreter, the tongue speaker can speak to himself or to God. Why does he say that? Well, do you remember in verse 4 of 1 Corinthians 14 when the Apostle Paul says, He that speaketh in an unknown tongue edifieth himself. So the tongue speaker does have some sort of understanding. We don't understand how this works, but he has some sort of understanding of what he's saying. And when he speaks in that unknown tongue, he's able to edify himself. And when he prays in an unknown tongue, he's able to edify himself. And of course, God understands him. But only when there is clear interpretation does he edify the congregation. And again, we've said most of this before. There's nothing wrong with self-edification in your private devotions. But self-edification is not the purpose of the gathered church. We assemble to edify one another, not ourselves. I was thinking just through some, perhaps some modern applications, right? Because we don't have tongue speaking in the church today as they had it then. But perhaps, imagine with me, a member of the church who knows English as a second language. And they do their spiritual devotions in their their first language, whatever that may be, if it's Spanish or German or whatever the case may be. My father uh, often will read the Bible in German because he's just so much more comfortable with the nuances of the German language. Is there anything wrong with reading the Bible in whatever language you're most comfortable in? Absolutely not. The only time it would be wrong is if you're going to do that when you're publicly reading the scriptures in an English-speaking church. Mm-hmm. You know, um, over in over in Germany, every time they met for, for worship, guess what? They were reading and praying in German. And they should do that. Uh, somebody asked me, they said something like, would it be would, would you like it if we prayed in English or read scripture in English? I said, actually in church, no, you need to do the language that you people know. I'm the outsider here, right? Uh, when we had meals, occasionally uh, the pastor would ask me to pray in English. Now they all know English just fine with the exception of a, a handful. But the, the principle is, is that we need to do what's edifying to the church. Now, when you think about churches today, who claim to practice the gift of tongues. And then you look at 1 Corinthians 14, verses 27 and 28. Do those two things match up for you? Is that at all what it looks like in churches today that claim to practice the gift of tongues? Well, the answer is no. It's never what it looks like. What it looks like is the whole congregation, just a a cacophony of unintelligible sounds and utterances all at the same time, with no one interpreting. And I don't mean to be insensitive or unduly rude, but the only conclusion we could draw from that is that they don't actually have the gift that they claim to have because they're not practicing it the way the Bible says it must be practiced. I'm not going to rehash the cessationist-continuationist debate, but if you want me to take your tongue speaking seriously, let's start with practicing it the way the Bible says it ought to be practiced, and then we'll, we'll, we'll consider whether or not it's the actual gift of tongues. <laughs> well, 
Paul moves on to dealing with the subject of prophecy. Notice in verse 29, he says, Let the prophets speak two or three, and let the other judge. So he gives the same rule. No more than two or three may prophesy at any one meeting. That's interesting. The rest of the church, and specifically the other prophets, were to judge. Now, don't, don't take this too far. I don't think that uh, Paul, what Paul was saying is that whenever the preacher gets up to preach, we're supposed to be sitting there uh, you know, with a big scowl on our face, judging his sermon. I think it's very sad that that is the reality in many churches. I know Christians, they go to church just to scrutinize the pastor rather than to receive the word preached. That's not what Paul is saying. No, when he, when he talks about judging here, he means while one is prophesying, the other prophets should be listening to his prophecy and discerning whether or not he's a real prophet, whether or not he really has a word from God. Well, how is that to be done before the completion of Scripture? They couldn't just open up their New Testament and uh, evaluate whether or not... It's really, if you have an educated church, it's really hard to, uh, to abuse the Scriptures because... You're looking at the same book I'm looking at. Uh, and you will be able to tell if I stray away from this book. Well, how, how did they judge? Well, let me give you three criteria. The prophecy had to be consistent with what was already revealed in the Old Testament. God uh, does not change his mind when you get to the book of Matthew. It's the same God. God did not give you Two books, he gave you one book. And there is a consistency and a continuity between the two Testaments. So a New Testament prophet would never prophesy something that contradicted something said in the Old Testament. Secondly, the prophecy had to be consistent with the teaching of the apostles. Why? Because the apostles were divinely called and inspired representatives of Jesus Christ on earth. So if in the Corinthian church... A prophet got up and he was giving a prophecy and one of the other prophets who was judging said, wait a minute, when Paul was here, he said something different. And Paul is an apostle, therefore you're wrong. Right? Had to be consistent with the teaching of the apostles. But thirdly, the prophecy had to be consistent with the principles of decent and orderly worship. So if the prophet lacked self-control and lacked decency... He was not to be received as a real prophet. By the way, these are the same criteria for evaluating preaching today. Preaching in the church today, well, it must be consistent with the Old Testament, right? It must be consistent with the teaching of the apostles. And where do we find the teaching of the apostles? In the New Testament. That's what the New Testament is. It's the writings and teachings of the apostles. So we need preaching that's consistent with Old Testament and New Testament. And we need preaching that's consistent with the principles of order in the church. And again, that doesn't mean that the preacher has to be dead and dry and monotone and reading his sermon at little more than a whisper. But it means that he needs to have some reverence about him when he stands in the pulpit to proclaim the word of God. God said in 1 Corinthians that it was by the foolishness of preaching that God saves sinners, but it's not by foolish preaching that he saves sinners. Amen. So he gives these instructions for prophets. 
Notice verse 30, he goes on and he says, If anything be revealed to another that sitteth by, let the first hold his peace. This means simply that if while one member was prophesying, another member received a fresh word from God, that member had to wait until the first prophet was finished before he could get up and give his prophecy. In other words, the fact that prophets had a message from God didn't give them the right to be disorderly. And if the third prophet of the day was speaking and a fourth prophet received a fresh word, well, hold your peace because we can only have two or three at any one meeting. Why does God give these rules? Because he doesn't want the church devolving into chaos. He doesn't want the very thing that was happening in Corinth. Now, imagine, if you will, if I prepared a sermon to preach to you, and Jackson also prepared a sermon, and uh, Philip prepared a sermon, and Alan prepared a sermon. We're, we're imagining here, right? Imagine with me. And so we've all got these four great sermons, and they're, I mean, they're great. They're wonderful sermons. And my sermon is from the book of Genesis, and so I stand up, and I turn you to the book of Genesis, and I start preaching, and I get a few minutes into my sermon, and then Jackson hops up, and he says, turn to the book of Romans. I've got a word of God from the book of Romans. And then Jackson starts out with his sermon, and then Alan stands up and says, turn over to Obadiah. I've got a word from God from Obadiah. And then Philip says, well, turn to Revelation. I'm going to preach to you from Revelation. Our four phenomenal sermons won't edify anyone because we've ruined them by being disorderly. I mean, we're talking about real prophets who had a real word from God. We're talking about real tongue speakers who had a real word from God in an unknown tongue. Paul is not devaluing the gifts or quenching the gifts in any way. Rather, he's given these rules of order so that the gifts can be exercised in a way that's profitable to the church. And I know that example, that example was a little extreme. But imagine, imagine if, if my preaching was just, um, you know, whatever I felt the Lord leading me to bring, it could be the Holy Spirit, it could be indigestion, but I just feel like this is the text for us today, and I don't really put much preparation in it, and it just kind of comes out as a confused mess. And I, I said, you know, I'm going to preach on this topic, and I'm, I'm preaching to you, and then I say, turn here, turn here, turn here, turn here. There's no clarity. There, there needs to be clarity. In the church, there needs to be order in the church if we're going to be blessed as the people of God. Notice verse 31, Paul says this, For ye may all prophesy, ye may all prophesy, one by one. (laughs) So Paul does not say that the church has to be limited to two or three prophets. The church may have a dozen prophets, two dozen prophets. But only two or three of them can speak at any one meeting of the church. And they must speak one by one. And then he says this phrase. He says, You may all prophesy one by one that all may learn and all may be comforted. That's the goal of prophecy. And that's the goal of preaching today. That all may learn and be comforted. True Christian worship is intelligent. I want my preaching to be educational 
and encouraging. When you come to church, my desire is that you will learn something and that your spirit will be uplifted. But that won't happen if our church becomes a chaotic mess. Then he goes on in verse 32 and he says, And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. What does that verse mean? Very simply, it means this. A true prophet is not someone overcome with a spiritual trance who falls out on the floor and just uncontrollably starts prophesying in the church. A true prophet was marked by self-control. The spirit of the prophet was subject to the prophet. Their word of prophecy didn't throw them into a frenzy. They were able to wait their turn. They were able to speak and communicate clearly and calmly. And they were able to stop when they were done. (laughs) Well, these very practical verses provide us with the way in which we are to worship. And while the elements of our worship may be different because we live in a different age of the church... There are no living apostles on the earth today, and the canon of Scripture is complete. So the elements may be different, but the instructions and order and decency are very much the same and still apply to the way we worship today. Well, let me give you thirdly and finally this morning. We've seen the what. We've seen uh, the way. Now I want you to see the why. The why of worship. And when I say that, I don't mean why do we worship, but why do we worship in this way? Having addressed the content and the manner of Christian worship, the apostle does not fail to state the reasoning behind his teaching. Notice he does so in verse 33. He says, for, because, okay, here's the theological rationale undergirding these practical instructions, for God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. Our worship must not be disorderly and confusing because the God we worship is not disorderly or confusing. Uh, The word author here is in the King James in italics. Whenever you see a word in italics in the King James, it means that the translators added the word to help us understand the meaning of the verse. They did that because in the Greek, the verse literally reads, For not he is of disorder the God, but of peace. He's not the God of disorder. He's not the God of chaos. He's not the God of uh, disharmony and anarchy. No, God does the things he does, and he executes his will with peace. Indeed, peace and harmony are descriptive of his very character. That's who he is. And what Paul is teaching us in this text is that the manner of our worship ought to be consistent with the character of our God. You say, wow, you know, your reverence is is orderly. Yeah, that's because we believe God is an orderly God. Wow, your worship is thought out, and uh, you put a lot of time and preparation to it. Yes, that's because we believe that God doesn't act on a whim, but God acts in accordance with a well-thought-out, divinely ordained decree. You know, your, your worship is very reverent. Yes, that's because we believe that God is high and holy and lofty. The way that we conduct ourselves is a reflection of what we believe we've come to do. If I believed I was 
meeting some buddies for pizza and a football game, I'd show up uh, in jeans and a t-shirt ready to have a casual good time. But if I believe, and I do believe, that I'm here to meet with the holy God of heaven and earth, I'm going to come in a different way. I'm going to approach him in a different way that's reflective of who I believe him to be. And I believe him to be not the author of confusion, but of peace. Our worship must be decent and orderly because that's who God is. Edification, order, and peace should mark the worship of God. And it's not just what we do that matters, but how we do it that matters as well. If we worship God in a confusing manner, we proclaim that God himself is confusing. But when we worship God in a way that is orderly and reverent, we proclaim that we worship a God who is high and lofty and does all that he does with a beautiful harmony. Well, you'll notice that this isn't where the verse ends, but it is where I'm going to end my exposition. When we pick up this text, I'll tell you why I humbly and really kind of reservedly believe that the phrase at the end of verse 33, as in all the churches of the saints, really belongs at the beginning of verse 34. I, I think that textual things like this are just absolutely fascinating, so I had a lot of fun. This was the most fun in preparing the sermon, was trying to figure out where this phrase at the end of verse 33 was supposed to go. And have, after looking at so many different exegetical helps and commentaries, I, I wish I was more confident than I am, but I am confident to end my sermon here. And next time we pick up, We'll have a riveting discussion on where this phrase at the end of verse 33 really belongs. And uh, I think that uh, the, the evidence in the text gives us enough reason to believe it really ought to be at the beginning of verse 34. And by the way, that shouldn't alarm any of you because chapter and verse divisions are not inspired. They were added. In fact, they were added much later. It wasn't until the, around the 1500s or so that the New Testament... Uh, got verse divisions and chapter divisions, and we praise God for that. Stephanus, who put them in there, we praise God for that. But we also recognize that uh, sometimes they might not entirely be correct in where they are. So next time we pick up, we'll pick up with this phrase, as in all the churches of the saints, and launch into verse 34. But let me leave you with some summarizing truths from this text that we considered today. Number one, our worship must be biblical in its parts and in its order. We must do in worship only what God has prescribed in his word, nothing more, nothing less. And we must do these things in the way that God has prescribed them as well. And that way is a way of order and decency. The second summarizing truth is part of this orderliness means that not every gift of every individual has to be used at every meeting. Does that make sense? Right? So the church might be blessed with multiple men who are gifted preachers. That doesn't mean that each of us have to preach every time the church assembles together. In fact, God actually commands the opposite of this when it comes to tongues and prophecy, and he restricts those gifts to no more than three individuals at each meeting. Well, the same is true today. It is a mark of a healthy church to have multiple men and women with spiritual gifts. But that doesn't mean that all of us must exercise our gift every time we come together. 
Third summarizing truth here, there is only one way of being infallibly led by the Holy Spirit, and that is through the precepts of the Word of God. Amen. Oftentimes, the chaos that ensues in worship will be legitimized because those behaving chaotically will claim that they're being led of the Spirit. <laughs> but who is the Spirit? Well, he's the third person of the Trinity. He's God. And he's not the God of confusion, but of peace. Amen. So if you're being led of the Spirit, you're not going to be behaving in a way that's confusing and chaotic, that's right. but in a way that's peaceful and edifying. Amen. Well, fourthly, lastly, what the church needs today is not more excitement and chaos, but more building up. That's, right. that's what we need. Mm-hmm. We need edification. We live in a day of theological anemia. There are many big buildings with lights and cameras and actions, but where is the clear proclamation of the truth of the Word of God? I'm all for having a nice facility. But you know what? I would rather worship God orderly and decently and scripturally in a, gla- in a, in a grass hut than I would have empty, vain, chaotic worship in luxury. Well, may God help us to see the beauty of worship that is biblical, that is reverent, that is decent, that is orderly. And may our hearts be excited when we do get to come together to worship God in the manner and way that He has prescribed for us. Let us close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank You in Jesus' name for the teachings of Your Word. I know this is not a text that would cause us necessarily to Uh, jump up and run laps, but perhaps uh, after reading and preaching this text, we understand that jumping up and running laps might not be the way you want us to behave in the church to begin with. I'm thankful, Lord, for the teachings of the Word of God. I'm thankful for um, a God of peace and a God of order. It's a comforting truth, Lord, because sometimes my life seems anything but orderly, and events come in and Things come up that we're not ready for, we're not planned for, and we get thrown into a tizzy. But we have a God that is ordered. We have a God that is peaceful. We have a God that is harmonious. And Lord, we pray that by the power of your Spirit, we would worship you in such a way that reflects the truth of who you are. Thank you, Lord, for the Word of God. Uh, May you use it to continue to build us up, to teach us. Teach this church the deep things of your Word. I pray that everyone here would realize that they are a theologian and it is their responsibility to the best of their God-given capacity to study and learn, to show themselves approved. What thus saith the Lord in his word? Oh Lord, thank you for worship. It is my favorite thing to do. It is the closest between heaven and uh, between uh, in this age that we get to heaven is when we get together to worship you as a church. We love you. We praise you. We ask your blessings upon the remainder of our Lord's day. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.